In the historic church calendar, uh, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas are called Advent. That word Advent uh, means arrival, and it particularly celebrates the arrival of someone or something extremely uh, significant, um, something that, that is history-making. And um, what's, what I find particularly meaningful about the Advent season, that it's, um, that it's, it's in our calendar that in the time of the year where, where the days are getting darker. And it's this understanding that uh, the darkness will not win out. Um, the dawn of salvation has come and pierces the darkness. Um, that is what we celebrate. That's what we reflect on as we head into uh, the Christmas season. It's this understanding, too, that when you look at um, the landscape of human history, uh, and particularly when you zoom in to the people of Israel, they had been sitting in 400 years of silence. And what that means is it had been 400 years uh, since the voice of a prophet, the voice of God, has come and sp uh, spoken to his people. And there, amidst silence, darkness, as they're in captivity, um, that's when the announcement of good news, of great joy that comes for all people, the Messiah, has been born. We're going to be looking at the opening of John chapter 1. I'm going to be zooming in at verse, starting at 29. I'm going to read from uh, verse 29 through 31. Um, as we do so, let me give you a little bit of context. Um, there are two Johns uh, that we're going to be, uh, that I want you to have a reference of. John, who writes the letter to us, has come to have the nickname by the, the church as John the Beloved. He's John the Apostle, the brother of James. Uh, that is not who we're going to be talking about when it says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. That John is John the Baptist. He is the prophet that sets the stage and prepares the way um, before the arrival of Jesus. So a little historical context for you, and uh, let's dive in here to John chapter 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see how big the words of hope here are of John's? John's words are a hope for the global eradication of sin. It's hard to comprehend that level of work. John is announcing to us here, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world. Have you ever stood in front of something? You stood in front of a mess, and you look at that mess, it is so crippling, and you don't know where to begin. So often, we'll, I'll be walking down the hallway and... And I'll walk into our youngest son's room, and it is that kind of a mess that stands in front of me. And I call him over to me, and I say to him, Tiago, you've got to clean your room. And there have been occasions when he's looked at the size of his mess, and he's began to cry out, I don't know where to begin. It's too much. 
I don't know how to start. Have you ever stood in front of that kind of a mess? I don't mind doing laundry. And the reason I don't mind doing laundry is because when it, laundry gives me an excuse to watch sports for a really long time. So what I do is I just, in our guest room, I don't mind telling you, in our guest room right now, there's just a pile of laundry. And there is a 49er game on this afternoon. And so I get to sit down and fold laundry, my act of service to my family, while I get to watch sports. But I do not like sorting socks. Socks, for me, are that, is that pile of mess. It's, it's all the mismatched socks. It's all trying to figure out whose socks belong to who. And are these, Diago, are these your socks? No, they're Justice's socks. And I don't know where to start. It's a mess that just is crippling to me. You know, a lot of times with people that do nonprofit work or seek to, to solve these global problems, a lot of times the reflection can be that, where do you even begin? How do you even begin to solve all of the problems that are ahead of us? You just look at like the food shortage crisis. You look at you know, dirty water. You look at pollution. You look at trafficking. You look at slavery. You look at wars. You look at all of these things that happen. I remember finding out that like the majority of our recycling just gets thrown in the landfills because we don't know what to do with all of it. And we don't have the ability to handle all of it. It just feels like, it just feels like what's the point? What's the point of all of this? It just can feel so overwhelming. And then there's the messes that exist maybe because of our own doing. There's, there's these mistakes or choices or these habits in our lives that leave, in, leave us in this place of saying, I don't, I don't know how to get out of this hole. I don't. I don't know how to go forward from here. How do you recover from something like this? What do you do in in this space? And the Bible has this radical vision, and it's summarized in these words that we've been reflecting on over the Advent season. It's, here comes heaven. Here comes heaven. Take heart, world, Because heaven has broken in. The dawn of salvation has come. And it points to us, points us to this hope that there will be a day when heaven and earth will be beautifully, perfectly mingled together. The current state of the world might be that sin is eating away at creation like a devastating parasite. But look who is walking toward us. Look who's making his way toward us. John's words here that we'll, we'll be reflecting on kind of almost statement by statement, but it, the John the Beloved captures for us what's happening for John the Baptist. It says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Friends, here comes heaven. He's coming toward us. And I love the imagery of his face pointed toward us and him moving toward us. Because there are times 
in our relationships where we can say that we are either turned toward someone, that our face is turned toward them, or there are times in, relationship, in relationships when we're turned away from people. You can probably even think of dynamics right now in your own lives. I think about the holiday season and us gathering with people for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, that there are going to be these, these relationships that we have where it really is the case that we are, our hearts are turned toward the people that are around us or our hearts are turned away from the people around us. You could probably think of someone in your life that right now you can maybe even picture their face that relationally you know that they are turned toward you. And there's so much joy in that, 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 they are, that their face is turned toward you. You know that you are a spark of joy for them, that they delight in you and they love you. I, I, um, there are times when I... Uh, step into the to the bathroom and and it's time to take a shower and then I notice that I don't have a towel because I threw my towel into the laundry and so then what I do is I recognize that Larissa has a fresh towel and I take that towel and I have all of the intention in the world to replace the towel that I've taken from her and then I forget like genuinely, I just forget. And as the day goes along, the, the way that it has, has played out is that I'm walking down our hallway and she's walking down the hallway and she greets me with, with affection. There's, there's genuine joy on her face. There's love in her eyes. She gives me a kiss and then she turns to the hall closet and she grabs a fresh towel. And in that moment, I think, oh no. I completely forgot. I stole her towel this morning. That even when I've treated her like that, her face is still turned toward me. I think what an absolute gift that she doesn't hold that against me, but she still expresses so much, more, so much joy and delight in me. God is moving towards us. His heart is pointed toward us. Bruce Milne in his commentary on um, this section of scripture, he says, listen, there's no sin too heinous, no wickedness too terrible, no habitual failure too often repeated that it cannot be taken away by Christ, our heavenly lamb. And I read that and I thought about it this way. There is no sin too heinous, no wickedness too terrible, no habitual failure too often repeated that the face of Jesus is no longer pointed towards you. He delights in you. He loves you. And the story of Advent is this recognition we have hope because he is moving toward us. He has great affection for us. 
John the Baptist sees Jesus moving toward him, and he says this to those around him. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I, sat, when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I've been baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. There's so much here. There, you look at the words that are given by John the Baptist, and you just, I just sit here and think, there is so much and I don't even know where to begin. But I want to highlight some of the facts that, that John is saying here about Jesus. They'll come up as bullet points on the screen, and um, John gives us so much to, to digest. He says he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. He says that this Lamb of God will take away the sin of the world. He describes Jesus as a man coming after me, who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. And it's just this incredible imagery and understanding that John has about Jesus, that he might be arriving after me, but he existed long before me. And then John calls Jesus the Messiah, the deliverer, the hope of Israel. We'll go through the first two of these, recognizing that each one of these bullet points could be a sermon series in and of themselves, and even these first two bullet points that we talk about this morning should only take us about four hours to get through. But the first point is this, the lamb, it won't take that long, uh, <laughs> talk about the lamb of God. This, this phrase, this phrase is dense. It is packed, jam-packed with so much imagery. This, this phrase would just get the Jewish mind spinning, their imagination completely inspired by these words. What does John mean when he's referencing Jesus as the Lamb of God? I'll take you through a couple of passages, and I want to, I want to speak spend some, some time here in these passages because I want you to feel the weight of these words that John is expressing here in this moment. The first passage I want to take you to is in Genesis chapter 22. Well, you can stay on that slide for a moment. These are the places that we're going to go. Genesis chapter 22, and it's this understanding of God being the one that will provide. Exodus uh, chapter 12 and the, the, the communication of the Passover, the imagery of the Passover, Leviticus uh, 16 and the scapegoat, and, this, and it's the day of atonement, and the warrior lamb, um, we'll get into that in a little bit, but, but uh, Jewish texts, um, ancient Jewish texts had this imagery and this understanding that one day God would bring a warrior lamb who would deliver them and judge uh, the nations around them. And anyways, Genesis chapter 22, here's, here's the section of Scripture that I want to read to you. It says, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. 
to this day, people still use that name as a proverb, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. I don't have a lot of time to, to go through the story, but Genesis chapter 22 is this moment where, where God comes to, is, to Abraham and he calls out to him, Abraham, and, and, and Abraham responds, here I am, and, and he tells Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to take him up to the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. And, and the book of Hebrews gives us insight in, and into the fact that, that um, Abraham knew that as he was going to go up to that mountain, that even if he did sacrifice his son, that God, by, he knew by faith that God would, would raise his son from, from the dead. And he's completely obedient to the voice of God. And as, right before he's about to strike his son, um, God intervenes and he says, hey, I see you. And what's so powerful about this passage is the way that it, it beautifully maps on to the story of Adam and Eve. Can I point it out to you? Here's what happens in these stories. The, the stories of, of Adam and Eve are that after they sin, after they eat of the fruit, it says that, eight, that God arrived and he called out to Adam. That's how, that's how the passage is framed. And then, and then what, what God tells um, Adam, he tells him, you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, now listen, in any other context, that's a great thing. Right? But, but, but in this context, what, what's happening here in this moment is, is that 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 tree was there as a way for, for Adam and Eve, for humanity to choose which voice are they going to be listening to. Are, is, is, is their understanding of wisdom and life going to happen as they listen to the voice of God, or is it going to happen as they listen to their own voice and to the voice of the serpent? And they chose that they would listen, and it's laid out for us. They listened to the serpent, and then God tells um, Adam, you listen to the voice of your wife. When you look at Genesis chapter 22, it starts off with saying God calls out to Abraham. It's the same words of God calling out to humanity in Genesis chapter, in Genesis chapter 3. And then in verse 18, which isn't up on the screen, God tells Abraham, you listened to my voice. You listened to my voice. And, and why, why go through all of that is to, is to show you that this lamb, this statement here by God is to say, I am going, because you've listened to my voice, I will provide a sacrifice to bring you back to an Eden kind of a relationship. I'm going to bring you back to the garden. And so when, when, when John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it is like this portal for the people of God to let them know, look, here's the one that God told Abraham he would provide that would return us back to paradise. He's the one that's going to take away the sin of the world that started with Adam and Eve. He's returning us back to creation. That perfect relationship 
where we walked with God in the garden. This is that promise. Here's Jesus. He's the arrival of that lamb on which it was said on this mountain God would provide. A dense statement here. We can keep on going. I'm going to just fly through the other ones really quick. Um, Exodus chapter 12, the instruction given to the people of Israel, it says that on the night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn, firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all, uh, all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. And he just loved this statement. When I see the blood, this plague of death will not touch you. And the imagery of the book of Exodus floods into so many rituals and practices of the church today because of the blood of the lamb that covers us. The plague of death will not touch us. that we have life in Christ. And the imagery is that of of being taken out of captivity and being brought into the promised land where God will dwell with us, where God will tabernacle with us. Every year, let me take you to the next passage. Um, It was called the Day of Atonement that was celebrated once a year. And and this was the instruction given to Aaron, the high priest, speaking of Aaron, it says, he must take two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which will carry the sins of the people into the wilderness of Azazel. Aaron will present as a sin offering the goat chosen by Lot for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat chosen by Lot, will be sent away, will be kept alive, standing before the Lord. When it is sent away to Azazel in the wilderness, the people will be purified and made right with the Lord. And the imagery of the crucifixion is that Jesus is taken out of the city gates, and, and, and it's out of the city gates that he's crucified. And he becomes this incredible imagery of the sins of humanity being transferred onto Jesus. And as he is brought out of the city, he takes our sins with him. It's, it's, it's him that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then there's this Jewish uh, um, ancient texts um, that we don't... They're, They're in the Mishnah um, and a couple of other places. But I'll give you a quote from, from a historian that looks at John's statement. It'll come up on the screen, and it says this. When the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he probably had in mind the apocalyptic lamb, the warrior lamb, found in some Jewish texts. What John the Baptist meant by who takes away the sin of the world may have had more to do with judgment and destruction than with expiatory sacrifice. John's understanding was very likely, look, here comes the warrior lamb that we have been waiting on who's going to conquer Rome on our behalf. Here's the guy that's going to come and he's going to get 
the, the foreign occupiers out of our land. So his understanding very likely could have been when he says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's thinking, look, here he comes, the guy that is going to get Rome out of here. And John the Baptist seems to have this hope that Jesus will be the one that deals with the Romans. The Lamb of God will deal with the foreign occupation and establish God's kingdom in the land. John might have had the expectation that Jesus would take up the sword, but instead the unfolding revelation over the gospel accounts is that rather than taking up the sword, Jesus takes up the cross. And this is the way that he's going to deal with oppression and captivity. The Lamb of God is going to establish his kingdom here on earth, and it will be through sacrificial love. I go through all of that to help you see that when John sees Jesus, it is, it, it, take, it can take so long to unpack all that John sees in Jesus. And, and you just imagine the joy, the delight, the hope that is filling John's heart in this moment. Do you see the one who's on his way? Do you realize the one that is making his way towards you? Do you see the one that is, that is arriving here in your midst? Do you realize the power that exists within him to deal with all the sin that has held us under captivity. Look, in him it's deliverance, it's freedom, it's forgiveness, it's restoration, it's justice, it's help, it's paradise. Look, all, all of that is making its way toward us. All of that is journeying towards you. And not just you individually, John tells us, Jesus is taking away the sin of the world. The statement here is that there is not a space in the world that sin is currently occupying that one, one day Jesus will not completely eradicate. From the globe. Every space. He will, so long as there is sin in the world, Jesus will be at work bringing restoration and redemption, returning us back to paradise. There, listen, growing up, there was a difference between how I cleaned the house and how my mom cleaned the house. Like I could clean up a space, and I thought that I did a great job, and she'd walk into the room, and she'd go, there, 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 and there. When John says, listen, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's his heart pointed toward us. He's fully aware for oppression, injustice, captivity, destruction, death, pain, disease, exists. 
and he's going to restore it. It is going to be a relentless work by Jesus to care for all of the sin that exists, to, to, to eradicate it. And so that's why the vision in the book of Revelation is this. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for I tell, what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Look. Look him. He's the one that takes away the sin of the world. And so John's admonishment to those around them, the application for us this morning is this, look. Look at him. Look at him. This week, would you spend some time looking at him? The lyrics of a song that I listened to this week, listened to this week from Maverick City called Come and Behold Him. It's just this, come and behold him, isn't he fascinating? Come and behold him, get lost in his majesty. Come and behold him, isn't he captivating? Take time this week to look at Jesus, to get lost in his majesty, to get lost in his glory. Just take time this week and, and, and turn your attention to him. A lot of times when, when this passage is reflected on, it's the idea of, of repentance is reflected on. And the way that I want you to think about that this week is, is this. Jesus is turned toward us. What John the Beloved writes to us is that Jesus was making his way toward John the Baptist. And I think the, 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 the imagery of repentance is that we were turned away from him. But as he has made his way toward us, our response is then to turn toward him. We look to him. We move toward him. And with that, what, what ends up happening now is that our trajectory becomes his trajectory. His trajectory becomes our trajectory. Look at him. Respond to him. Move with him. Pay attention to him. Be aware of him. Right? It's this acknowledgement, the movement of my life has been turned away from you. I have hurt others. I have lived life from my own understanding and my own definition of what is good. And the results have not been great. But now we look to you as our source of, of forgiveness and atonement. 
And I believe it's intentional by John the Beloved that right after this statement of, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the, the one that was making his way towards John, the very next story that you'll read is that some of John the Baptist's disciples leave John the Baptist and become disciples of Jesus. That's what repentance is. That's what looking at him is. couple of ideas for you. How should you take notice of Jesus this week? How do you look at him this week? Maybe it's a podcast. Maybe it's just some time on, on your drive this week and you listen to the Bible Project or you listen to a, a sermon or you just reflect on a resource or, that just allows you to, to look at Jesus this week. Maybe it's a Bible study. Maybe it's reflection. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's sitting down and at the sunset. Two songs, I think they'll come up on the screen that I've loved this week. Maybe it's reflecting on, on, on some worship lyrics. Come and Behold by Maverick City, Soul on Fire by Third Day, All Sons and Daughters. Some of the lyrics from these are just, Lord, restore the joy that I have. I have wandered, bring me back. In the, this darkness, lead me through until all I see is you. Church, I think that the response simply is, like, look, in, amidst this, this Advent season, wherever we find ourselves, that we can look up and we can see Jesus. Here he is. He's making his way toward us. His heart, his delight, his affections are set toward us. And our response is just, Lord, I want to sit with you and I want to look toward you. Let's pray. Jesus, we look we look at you today. We look to you as our help in times of need. We look to you as the one that our hearts leap at the news of. Oh, Father, we, we, we love you. We adore you. And, and Lord, I just pray for this, this community of people called faith, that they would have, continue to have greater awareness of your presence with them. They would know your abiding spirit with them. That this week ahead, no matter what they, what they navigate, it most, may be the most mundane of moments or maybe uh, a space of anxiousness, of stress, of worry, of doubt, that in those spaces that they would be able to look towards you. Father, thank you for your affection for us. Thank you for your great love for us. And... Um, and Jesus, I pray that the gift that you might give your people is that, is that we would have this picture of your face shining on us. That we would have this picture of you genuinely filled with joy and delight as you look at us. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.